I'm Tamara Steele. In this week's show, being on the ice in this arena may have saved his life. St. John's re-elected MP is heading back to the Hill, and early reviews are good for rebranding this government department. A regular night of men's hockey was anything but back in February when Dan Cassidy had a heart attack on the ice at the Qplex. Dan Cassidy blacked out and was revived after one of the players on his team began doing chest compressions. I spoke to him about what happened back on February 27th. I was out playing hockey at the Chris Band Moosehead Gents, and I was a second shift out. And I, um, first shift, I felt like I was a little tired, but no big deal. It was just part of the ordinary shift, I guess. And I got out for my second shift, and I went into the corner, and I just blacked out. Wow. So I really can't tell you a lot about what happened when I was uh, when I was unconscious or when I was gone. As time went on, they they told me that I lost my heart rate and I was actually uh, physically dead at the time. And the uh, people that were there took care of me. They brought the machine over. The guy did catch chest compressions, and all I can remember is I just felt like I was in a pleasant dream, and I was just kind of floating along. And next thing you know, I opened my eyes and. It was one of the, must have been one he was doing one of the compressions that kind of snapped me out of it. And I just sat up and kind of caught my breath. And then I just, they started asking me questions. I was kind of lost for answers. I was kind of slurring on my questions and answers. And then next thing you know, I said, I just, well, look, I'm going to just get my, I'll call my wife and I'll just uh, go to the house and maybe later on I'll go to the hospital. And, they, and the ambulance attendant showed right after that time and said, no, you're going to, you're coming with us. So off I went to the hospital, and uh, I felt kind of nauseous in the uh, ambience. So I figured, you know, something did happen to me. I wasn't sure what happened. And then I got to the hospital, and they started running tests. Said, the blood looks good. Your your EKG looks good. Everything looks fine. He says, maybe maybe you just had a small cardiac event. I said, that's fine. You know, like I wasn't really sure what was going on. And the next day, they took me down to cath lab to the cath. I got calf on me, and they found that I had three blockages when they shot the dye, and one was 90%. That's in your, what they call the widowmaker that actually feeds your heart, and it was a 90% blockage, and they said, usually when we see this, we don't usually get people back. And they said, I was a very lucky guy, and they found two more blockages after that, and he just asked me if I wanted to go to open heart surgery right now, or else if I want to get splints put in. And I said, geez, I... I kind of thought you'd make that call, but if you're going to ask me, I'll say, like, let's just put the splints in. So I put the splints in and uh, went back upstairs and recovered. A couple of days later, I was at the hospital. And So who helped you on the ice? It was Steve Anderson was the one that jumped on my chest, and there was just a, a collage of people gathered around me that uh, just all kind of brought machines and... Um, those cardiac nurses showed up off the uh, bench. She came running over, and she was kind of directing the show a little bit, telling Steve, went to, you know, I lost my heart rate. So he said, start doing chest compressions. And it was, I guess it was a collage of people. Just everybody was pitching in and grabbing machines and, and calling the ambulance. And so, uh, who, did, who did what? I weren't really yeah. on because <laughs> so, I, wasn't really con- I wasn't really conscious. So when you opened your eyes on one of those chest compressions, what did you see? Were you still on the ice? 
Oh yeah, I was laying down. Yes, there was a the the actual uh, the, the Pupux had a video of the whole thing, and uh, I had just we had the opportunity to see it just today, and it was um, kind of eye opening. I didn't realize I well yes it was, and you know you feel a little glad that people were around to bring you back, have another chance at life, I guess, because if it would have been out walking my dog in the woods somewhere, I probably wouldn't have been there to talk about it today. Absolutely. Um, so you ha- so did you have stints put in? How many? Three. three. And yeah. were you, um, you know, laid up for a very long period? Off work, you know, recuperating? Um, I, I, I took a month that I didn't. They wanted me to take off like six to eight weeks. And after about a month, I was getting a little antsy, and I was actually uh, starting to get, you know, take the dog for walks and stuff. And I wasn't really at the snuff, but I got a call for a job that was not really a hard job, so I took it. And I worked there for about six weeks. And it was uh, the guys that were working with me and stuff. They knew the situation, so they kind of, I hate to say it, but they kind of took care of me, which was nice because I usually am pretty independent. But they were helping me out a lot and, you know, kind of picking up, oh, no, we'll get that, we'll get that. So I was... I felt kind of like, oh, geez, you're going overboard, but it was nice to get that attention. It was nice to be able to have your fellow workers showing a little bit of recognition for you. What and, do you um, do for a living, Dan? A mechanical insulator. Okay. I work through I work through the union, so I just get calls for wherever wherever so they various work job sites. It, exactly, exactly. Okay. Um, so then, were you back at work in the spring? Actually, after after that, after I got after I got done there, I I kind of took off about two months. I, I just. I was I was tired from working, and I realized maybe I probably should have took the extra time off. So I just I did. I took the summer off, and I said, you know what? I worked every summer for the last couple of years, and this was kind of you know it doesn't sink in. It's just like it, this always happens to somebody else. And after it's kind of sunk in that you know I I, I think I'm just going to take a little break here. So for the summer, I when I when I was tired in the afternoon, I had a little nap, which I usually don't do. But my wife encouraged me and said. You know, you've been through something pretty dramatic. You know, whether you want to admit it or not, because you always think it happens to somebody else, and and you're kind of independent. And you know, I've always been a kind of go-to guy. Or you know, it's hard. It's hard to say, okay, I'm going to have to take a break here and just rest my body. So I did. I took it for about two months, and and now I got back to work there just when the uh, the first of the month here, and I'm kind of back at it again and trying to get myself in work shape and kind of push forward. Back playing hockey again. Really? And what was is, the first um, time getting on the ice like? A little nervous because, you know, it did happen on the ice. And I skated hard for a little bit of a shift. And I realized I was breathing hard. And, you know, all of a sudden you think, I'm not going to go as hard. I'm going to just, you know, time for me to go over and take a change. But I didn't. I went out and it was one of my friends encouraged me. I'd played with him for years in summer hockey. And he said, geez, come out and just play defense. And just, you know, when you feel tired, go off. And if you don't feel like you can handle it, don't worry about it. Just go on home. So I got out, and I, I, I missed it. I enjoyed it. I liked being out in the ice with the guys. And I just took it easy for the first three or four games. And then all of a sudden, I, our, seasons, our seasonal hockey started up again. I said, you know what? I'll do the same again. I'll go to seasonal hockey. And if it's, uh, if it's too much, I'll just I'll bow out. But so far, I've, I feel pretty good. And, you know, it's probably the best thing I could do is get out and be physical. Dan, do you mind if I ask how old you are? Uh, 60. Okay. Um... What about um, defibrillators? How do you feel about defibrillators in public buildings now? Everywhere I go now, when I'm out in public events, uh, I've gone to a couple of uh, concert shows. I've been to different rinks. And I always look, actually, when I first went back, the first day I went back and played this pickup hockey with uh, the Summer League, 
I was looking around. I found a defibrillator, and I went in the room, and I said, not to be smart, guys, because most of the guys knew what happened with me. And I said, not to be smart, but I said, uh, does everybody know where the defibrillator is? And then someone said, oh, it's in the hallway or something. And I was like, yeah, it's actually at the end of the hallway next to our dressing room. And the guy said, geez, I didn't even know there was a defibrillator. So now I'm kind of a little more cautious. I'm a little more observant when I look around for stuff like that, especially in a public event place. And I think when I don't see one, I kind of feel like I should go to whoever's administrator or whatever and say, you know, these guys really should have one there. And um, anyways, like I say, it's kind of opened my eyes a lot more to it. I'm uh, a lot more, now that it's been, you know, it, 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 did, it wasn't used in my case. It was used, but it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't activated, but it could have very well been needed. So I'm really kind of pro, pro-choice for it right now, for sure. Absolutely. Um, anything else about this you want to add, Dan? Like what, obviously it must have been pretty uh, upsetting for your family and they were probably really happy that it happened while you were around people. The silly thing is me and my wife were taking the dog for a walk about two weeks before this. And we usually stay on the trail. It's a trail across from uh, the soccer field in Ross in French Village. And we had me taking the trail and we decided uh, just to take our dog off the trail because somebody else had taken this trail. It was fresh snow down. It was probably about three or four inches. And we followed this trail with this guy who had this dog ahead of us. We didn't see, we never ever did encounter them. But they went so far and all of a sudden they went off the trail. And it looked like a, a, an older trail from a long time ago. So we said, well, let's just stick this way just to, you know, let the dog off the leash and let it run a little bit. And we usually take the 45 minute walk. And usually that's, we, we can do that pretty easily. But this trail ended up being like two and a half hours. And I remember being halfway through the trail and I was exhausted. I was getting very tired and getting very winded. And I was like, I don't know if we should go back or keep going forward because we keep going forward. It might be shorter going forward. So we kept going and ended up being like two and a half hours. And we finally come on the trail. When we got home, I was just like sweating and I was kind of tired. And this happened like two weeks before this incident in the ice. And neither one of us had our cell phones on us. So if something would have happened in there, I wouldn't probably be here today also. <laughs> so did kind of you a... actually have a heart attack? Technically? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like my heart, my heart, my heart stopped. It but was... they didn't need the defibrillator because of the man doing chest compressions. Well, what happened was uh, it, the machine kept registering that it was it may shock. I had I had defibrillation, but when he was jumping on my chest doing chest compressions, it broke the rhythm, and the rhythm kept coming back as if it wasn't if, if it wasn't defib. If you know what I mean. Anyways, it didn't shock, so they just kept doing. The nurse that was there told the guy that was uh, doing the chest compressions, Steve Anderson, to freaking keep doing chest compressions. And that's what he did. He kept doing chest compressions. And then all of a sudden, I just took a big gasp and I opened my eyes and I got my pulse back, I I, I guess. And, uh, and then here paramedics here showed up. Yeah. Yeah. They showed up very quickly. I was surprised. I, I, I didn't realize like there was no, the, the doors to the rink were open in the back end and the ambulance was actually backing in when I sat up and I'm like, Man, they like what are they doing here? They must have been just outside the door or something because it seemed like it was just seconds. And actually, the whole episode probably was about five minutes, like from the time I went down to the time I sat up. So it was they got there very fast. Dan Cassidy was joined by his fellow players, a cardiac nurse, and the paramedics who assisted him in a ceremony held at the Qplex back on November seventh. 
As New Brunswick faces a labor shortage, the province is changing the way it offers employment programs. Current wage subsidy programs and their budgets are being replaced with the new Workplace Connections Fund. Post-secondary education training and labor minister Trevor Holder made the announcement this week in St. John. When I arrived at the Department of Post-Secondary Education Training and Labor just over a year ago, one of the first things that I discovered was that over the next 10 years, and I know many of you have heard me say this before, and I'm going to say it again, over the next 10 years, 120,000 New Brunswickers are going to leave the workforce due to retirement. At first, people would come up to me and say, that number can't be real. Well, let me tell you, that number is real, and it's based on research. And quite frankly, we can deny it, or we can continue to work towards making sure that we take this challenge and turn it into an opportunity. And the first priority that we had when we arrived in government and we understood that this was an opportunity coming towards us was we knew we had to grow our population. And that's why I was really excited back in August to announce the population growth strategy. However, there's more work to be done to complement that strategy. We have an old approach to the way that we do business in the Department of Post-Secondary Education, Training and Labor, and that has to change. The way the department supports community, communities, workers, and employers is based on a 1970s manpower model that no longer applies. It was designed when we had a significantly high unemployment rate, not like we have today, a labor shortage. We have a number of programs that are criteria-based. And quite frankly, we waste a lot of time at the staff level trying to fit people and communities and employers into those programs. You're going to hear from several people later today. You're going to hear from Jeremy, who benefited from the Youth Employment Program. Jeremy's 27 years old. If he'd been 30 years old, he couldn't have benefited from that program. We need to have more Jeremy's, and we need a more flexible program to accomplish that. You're going to hear from Moosehead Breweries, in fact, that will talk about how frustrating it was a few years ago until the department slowly became a lot more nimble. Well, we have to become more nimble and flexible to meet the demands in front of us. A lot of these programs, and I'm going to be quite candid when I say this, these programs made sense at the middle of an election time or midway through a mandate when platforms were being developed. But they weren't necessarily always based on meeting the actual needs of the community. We need to also make sure that we're working with social development and with organizations like Catapult so that we're more flexible in making sure that we're taking folks that uh, are what we would call the underrepresented and making sure that we're taking social development clients that are at risk and getting them into the workforce as well. We also need a program that's much more flexible to work with not just attracting new Canadians, but retaining new Canadians. That's why today I'm pleased to announce that we will be uh, announcing a much more flexible fund replacing the existing labour support programs. This new Workplace Connection Fund will be more nimble to meet the needs of the communities. The $120 million that we spend on existing programs will be rolled over into this new fund. Also, we have heard consistently from people over the years that they don't know what happens at the pedal office. They don't sometimes even know where the pedal office is. People in our pedal offices will tell you that. In fact, 
I've seen it spelt, and I know that folks in my department have said they've seen it spelt so many different ways. Sometimes it's pedal with a D, sometimes it's pedal with a T. People don't know whether we're talking about a flower shop or a bicycle shop. Well, quite frankly, that has to change. Our 19 offices starting this week will slowly be rebranded to Working New Brunswick or Travai New Br uh, NB. This will make sure that our departments, our, our, our regional offices, have the resources in place. They will be in line with local economic development plans and local population growth strategies. Those plans will be measured and will be looking for results. And what works in one community might not work in another community. So what works in, in Shippigan might not be the same as what works in St. George, and what works in St. George today might not be what works in St. George two years from now. We need a more flexible plan. We need offices that are equipped with those funds to meet the labor market demands that are coming towards us. That was post-secondary education training and labor minister Trevor Holder in St. John this week, where he announced changes to the way the province offers employment programs. Recently re-elected Liberal MP Wayne Long heads back to Ottawa on December 5th. Danielle McCready caught up with him on what he's looking forward to in Parliament and what he hopes to accomplish this term for the riding of St. John Rossi. I'm really looking forward to getting back to Ottawa and, and doing, I think, what I do best, which is representing St. John Rossi and getting to work in Ottawa, working through the system in Ottawa, meeting with the appropriate people, and delivering great things for St. John Rossi. That's what I'm uh, determined to continue doing. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that are top of your mind <coughs> to, you know, bring back to, to the House and to Parliament for, you know, St. John Rossi? We're extremely focused on what we wanted to deliver for the riding. And I mean, number one, we want to deliver and continue to deliver um, infrastructure dollars that St. John and Rossi badly, badly need. We certainly know, you know, the financial state of this city. So everything that I can do in Ottawa to deliver federal funding to help offset costs, to, you know, help, um, you know, restore historic projects or... Um, restore buildings or water and sewer roads, et cetera, et cetera, I'm going to deliver. I mean, we've availed hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure money, and it's my job to go up to Ottawa, go to bat for proponents in this riding, and deliver that uh, money that's badly needed in St. John. Are you looking forward to the, the back and forth? Is that something you enjoy? Yeah. or? Well, going back and forth is always a grind, and I know a lot of people don't really appreciate the you know, the toll it takes on you uh, mentally and physically. But, uh, you know, I go up basically on Sunday afternoons. I come back on Friday afternoons. I'm up in Ottawa, you know, 160 to 180 days a year. And I just go up with a purpose. I go up with a focus. I think a lot of it is my business background. There are certain things I want to deliver for St. John, St. John Rossi, increased infrastructure funding. I want to continue to bring federal funding down here to restore our historic treasures. I want to continue to be a voice and advocate for those living in poverty, for those that need a helping hand. And I also want to be a loud voice for democratic reform. I think our parliamentary system can use a lot more uh, strong, independent voices. I think I've developed a reputation of speaking my mind, saying what I think is right, representing this writing first, and I'm going to continue to do that. So now there are going to be a lot less liberals from Atlantic Canada <coughs> in uh, the House this year. Do you think that's going to make your job a little more difficult, or what are you expecting there? 
Well, I'm certainly up for the challenge. I mean, if you look around me in southern New Brunswick, really I'm the only liberal here surrounded by, you know, conservative and one green MP. But you know what? I take my position um, as an opportunity to have an in-government voice for southern New Brunswick. I'm going to speak loud. Uh, I'm going to be in caucus. And I think it's a tremendous advantage for St. John Rossi to have a sitting in-government MP that continued to you know, meet with the appropriate ministers, meet with the appropriate departments, and most importantly, deliver funding for a riding that, you know, needs every federal dollar invested in it that I can deliver. And I take my job seriously. I've got projects I want to work on. I got things I want to deliver. I have people I want to advocate for, and I'm going to continue to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with uh, <coughs> Trudeau named his uh, <coughs> ministers recently, some new faces, some, some new shuffles, um, what, what do you think about that and, you know, who you're going to have to work with? Well, I mean, the cabinet was obviously selected last week, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's to anybody's surprise that Dominic LeBlanc is certainly the senior statesman. He's the senior cabinet minister for the province. Um, you know, over the next week or two, they'll also be naming uh, parliamentary secretaries, which are, you know, somewhat of an associate minister, if you will. So we'll see what happens and, you know, who is selected for those positions. Um, but regardless of what happens, um, you know, my job is to go to Ottawa. My job is to stand up for St. John Rossi, to speak up, and most importantly, deliver much-needed federal riding for a riding that deserves it. I'm Danielle McCready. That's it for this week's show. I'm Tamara Steele.